Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to August's edition of Recharge, the podcast of Battery Materials Review. Thanks for tuning in this month. We've got two really fascinating interviews with CEOs of companies whose commodities are not well known or understood in the battery space, or even in fact in the wider mining space. With manganese a key component of nickel-rich battery chemistries for electric vehicles, it'll be of growing importance in the next few years. But very few people have a clue as to the dynamics of the market. We welcome Marco Romero, President and CEO of Euro Manganese, who tells us a little about the high-purity manganese market and about his company's very interesting project in the Czech Republic, at the heart of the rapidly developing European battery industry. Vanadium is another material that's known primarily as an additive in the steel industry, but it also has a fascinating future in vanadium batteries. We're joined by Fortune Mojapello, CEO of Bushveld Minerals, and Mikhail Nikomarov, CEO of the company's Bushveld Energy subsidiary, for a fascinating and far-reaching discussion on their company's plans and the potential for VRFBs to become an important chemistry in stationary storage applications in coming years. Before we get on to that, though, just a quick recap of the month's news flow from Battery Materials Review. Our lead focus piece in the August issue discusses the important inflection point we appear to be at with regards to electric vehicles as governments around the world transition from the carrot approach to subsidies to the stick approach. We discuss the impact that this will likely have on EV sales and also talk about the requirement for EVs to penetrate the mass market to have any chance of reaching the sort of volumes that are required to make them a sustainable technology. As we discuss in the article, the current generation of EVs is still a distance away from penetrating the mass market, which we suggest is in the region of fifteen to £20,000 per vehicle. We talk about which manufacturers are closest to reaching mass market penetration and how they're likely to do that. Moving on to the news then. July was again a busy month for news flow and we struggled to fit all the developments into one report. In raw materials, Pallinghurst's conditional move to bail out Namaska lithium consumed quite a few column inches, as did Albemarle's and Mineral Resources' revised deal for the Wajina project. Notably, the takeout multiple for Namaska was considerably lower than for the Wajina transaction, highlighting the distressed nature of the opportunity. When all aspects of the Wajina transaction are put together, it looks like a pretty good deal for both parties. Albemarle gets its share of the asset for a lower price than it initially bid, but Mineral Resources also gets a share in a hydroxide plant and doesn't have to utilise the cash it will receive to build its own. In this market as well, sitting on $820 million of cash shouldn't be underestimated. It's been a tough period the last quarter for Australia's fledgling hard rock lithium producers, and while a number of Chinese companies have played musical chairs with offtake agreements and equity stakes, there's still concerns about challenging market conditions. As I record this podcast, Galaxy has announced a significant write-down on its Mount Catlin mine. We discuss also in this issue the number of companies looking at geothermal lithium brines as base metal explorer Copper Resources announces plans to buy into a geothermal brine project in Germany. While US and China trade issues remain a concern, it's worth also drawing attention to the bust-up between Korea and Japan, which has accounted for semiconductor raw materials and could also start to impact battery raw materials. We'll be keeping an eye on this, and there's no doubt that the Koreans are concerned about it. Finally, I just wanted to highlight a fascinating report out this month from the Swedish Energy Agency that highlights that recycling of lithium-ion batteries may have been understated in recent years. It suggests that there's more recycling activity out there than necessarily appreciated. We benchmark two listed company recycling projects against the parameters in this report, and it makes for interesting reading. In exploration, we tracked 12 sets of drill results in the sector this month, as well as four resource updates. The standout was Liontown Resources' Kathleen Valley resource upgrade to 74.9 million tonnes. While on the face of it this looks like a good number, we're concerned about the depth of the resource compared to other hard rock projects. In development news, there's news flow on 13 companies. 
We discuss in more detail the feasibility study for SRG Mining's Lola Graphite project in Guinea. While there are some substantial changes from the project PEA, particularly with regards to basket constituents and processing cost, it still looks like a viable project to us. There were what seems like hundreds of production results released in July, and I'm certainly not going to go through everything. Just to pull a couple of trends out, in Hard Rock Lithium, both Galaxy Resources and Ultura had strong production, but both are currently mining high-grade zones, so slightly overstated. Most companies in both brine and hard rock lithium highlighted difficult demand conditions, and the fall in lithium chemicals prices in July suggests that that's not going to change anytime soon. In other commodities markets, it looks like graphite prices are starting to stabilise in July, after some pretty tough months. Cobalt and cobalt sulphate prices have continued to fall, although perhaps they may be showing signs of stabilising at current levels, and the announcement that Glencore will cut production at Mutanda in the DRC should shore up the supply-demand balance towards the end of the year. Rare earth prices and equities came off as the US-China trade tension ameliorated earlier in the month, although it looks like tensions are back to their highs now, which should give prices a bid. It looks like vanadium prices also might be putting in a floor in recent months, with fundamental demand likely to come back into the market at these price levels. In base metals, nickel's been a winner this month. But a word of caution, while LME exchange inventories are down, Shanghai exchange inventories are up, and we worry about off-exchange inventory build. While there's no doubt that nickel is exciting in the long term, it does look a little bit overbought at the moment. In the downstream space... VW announced that it will create JVs and help to finance battery production in order to make sure that there's enough supply in the market for its needs. Elsewhere, downstream results were a little bit mixed, with battery markets generally looking robust, but battery intermediate demand remaining weak. We would highlight a report by IHS Market this month which suggests that 22% of European new car sales are likely to be plug-in by 2025 and also one by Wood Mackenzie that China's cumulative energy storage capacity is set to increase 25-fold between 2017 and 2024 to 12.5 gigawatts of installed capacity. In the storage market, a report suggests that in the US it's now cheaper to build a triple hybrid power and storage solution than a new gas PICA power plant, which has to be positive for battery demand going forward. In our tech section this month, we report on S-Volt's new NMX and NCMA batteries and also ask whether chromium flow batteries might be the next big thing. And finally, in our trade and demand section, we discuss the recovery in EV sales in July, signs that smartphone markets may be recovering and Japan's move towards a net import position for lithium-ion batteries. Our equity roundup includes discussion on two new equity baskets which we launched this month in nickel and copper. Our strongest performing basket for July was cobalt, up 8%, followed by downstream, up 7%. Our rare earth element basket was the worst performer, down 10%. We also discussed whether it might be time for brine producers to outperform hard rock, given that our hard rock basket has outperformed our brine one by over 50% during the last three months. So that's the end of our news roundup for July. If you have any questions on any of the topics I've covered, please contact me or you can find more information on our website at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. Moving on to our company interviews now, and we tried to go a little bit off the beaten lithium-ion track this month. Manganese is not a material that's well-known, even by long-time mining industry commentators, but it's going to be of vital importance to battery makers going forward. While it's a common material in steel manufacture, high-purity manganese of the type required for battery manufacture is extremely rare. I was delighted to have the opportunity to talk with Euromanganese CEO Marco Romero to discuss the high-purity manganese market and his company's plans to build a new project to supply it. Marco, welcome to the Recharge podcast. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Matt. Kicking straight off with the questions, Manganese isn't really a very well-known metal, I think it's fair to say. Could you talk a little about the change in battery chemistries that's put manganese in focus as a battery material? Well, manganese has been used in batteries for a great deal of time. In fact, starting with non-rechargeable 
conventional dry cell batteries. Uh, manganese has been a major component of that for a very long time. So it's been an energy metal for certainly many decades. More recently, the electrochemical properties of manganese were recognized and a great deal of work has been done to make use of these electrochemical properties in lithium-ion batteries. And as the chemistry of these batteries has evolved with this quest to achieve greater energy density, safety, reliability, rechargeable features, rechargeable characteristics, manganese has increasingly become a critical battery raw material. And more so now with the very rapid evolution of the electric vehicle. And you are seeing now manganese as a major critical element, if you want, in the majority of lithium-ion batteries that are used for electric vehicles in the world. So we're talking, I guess, about the move to NMC batteries, but also LMO batteries. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. NMC is now expected to increasingly be the dominant electric vehicle battery chemistry, NMC standing for nickel, manganese, and cobalt. And as a great deal of research and development and ultimately commercialization of these battery chemistry has taken place, work has been done to achieve greater performance, and that is evolving very rapidly today. So we are seeing now formulations of batteries that are trying to achieve this performance and at the same time bring costs down and achieve safety performance and many other things. And manganese is playing an enormous role. In some battery chemistries, you're seeing an increase in nickel, largely driven by a desire to engineer out cobalt, which is seen as a metal with a vulnerable supply and also a very high cost. And in other cases, you're seeing pushes towards higher manganese batteries, higher manganese content in the batteries, uh, trying to bring down these costs because manganese is by far the lowest cost per unit input into these battery chemistries as opposed to lithium or nickel or cobalt. So your project uh, that you're going to talk about in a moment is targeting production of battery-grade manganese. Manganese is obviously used primarily in steel manufacture, and battery-grade manganese, I think it's fair to say, is a pretty tiny market compared to that. Can you tell us a little bit about how that market for battery-grade manganese is forecast to grow in the coming years? Battery-grade manganese takes a number of different forms, but what has been happening of late is... Because of this evolving chemistry, you are seeing a very strong push towards very high purity materials, which largely materials that have very low impurity levels, which can cause deleterious side reactions, which have impacts on battery performance, longevity, and importantly, safety. So you have an industry that is emerging now rapidly, albeit a small one still today, that is focused on producing manganese products of a purity that has not been required until recently. And that is precisely what we are focused on. We see a major emerging opportunity to deliver very high purity products produced in a very environmentally sound way for this growing demand of we can envisage over a period of the next couple of decades or so an increase in manganese demand going from less than 100,000 tons a year to well over a million tons of manganese contained in various products. So that's a pretty significant growth. Now, Given that there's quite a lot of manganese about, I think people will be asking, well, why can't we just adapt existing manganese mines and projects to make high-purity manganese? But it's not really about that, is it? It's more about the chemical side of things. Can you talk a little bit more about that side of things? Yes. There is a great deal of manganese in the world. In fact, manganese is the fourth most traded 
metal in the world by volume. But there are manganese ores and then there are manganese ores and not all ores are made equal and not all ores can easily economically and environmentally be converted to these ultra high purity products. The real challenge is in the processing. The real challenge is in having the right raw material that can be turned into a very highly refined product. Thanks very much. So um, moving on to the project itself, you completed a PEA on the project in January 2019. Can you just run us through the highlights of that? Absolutely. We have been working on the Kvalitice Manganese project, which is located about 90 kilometers east of Prague in the Czech Republic for over four years now. During that time, we focused on four principal fronts. The first one being developing a deep understanding, a quantitative, qualitative understanding of the resource, which is hosted in tailings or waste from an old mining operation. That's now completed. So we completed a very extensive drilling and resource estimation project. We've now got 98% of our resource, which is an extraordinary number, now classified as a measured resource. So we start off with this resource understanding. Number two, we focused on developing a process flow sheet using conventional commercial technology to extract the manganese in the most efficient way possible, but importantly, in the most environmentally sound way possible. A lot of that work has now been done, completed to a a very high level, literally thousands of tests, and even run a pilot plant on the project. Finally, we went through a very extensive cost estimation and engineering process, which we did largely in China, working with leading firms with deep experience and understanding of manganese processing and production of high-purity manganese products, and came up with a set of numbers estimating the capital cost, the operating costs of this project. And uh, in parallel with all this, we also have done an enormous amount of work to plan the project so that it can be compliant with all European Union and Czech environmental standards, along with a lot of work with local communities to make sure that we understood what they want and what they don't want out of this project. All that was wrapped into a study which we published in late January of this year, which is our preliminary economic assessment, or PEA. The project that came out of all this gives us a 25-year life producing approximately 48,000 tons per annum of contained manganese in essentially two principal products. All the production would be converted to what we call ultra-high purity electrolytic manganese metal, which is a highly refined form of metal that contains in excess of 99.9% manganese. Then we decided that two-thirds of that would be converted to ultra-high purity manganese sulfate monohydrate, which is the actual ingredient that goes into making most NMC cathode precursors and Out of that came a project with good, robust economics. We see ourselves being able to extract commercially just under 60% of the contained manganese. We see ourselves with competitive costs. And uh, to summarize the project economics, the net present value of the project is 593 million US dollars after tax and a 22.6% after-tax rate of return. Cumulative cash flow in the order of about 3.3 billion US dollars. Okay, and the CapEx of the project? CapEx requirements, approximately $404 million, about $30 million worth of working capital. That's it. And obviously you said that the project is located in the Czech Republic. Among other things, you're pretty much in the center of Europe. What are the advantages of being in this location? Kvalitice is blessed in many ways. Like you point out, 
being literally in the center of a major cluster of demand is critical. We are literally surrounded in every single direction, north, south, east, west, by new and emerging cathode precursor battery production and electric vehicle production. And, you know, we see ourselves being very strategically located. Also, importantly, we are blessed with extraordinary infrastructure. We have a rail line directly adjacent to the project, a major rail line. We have electrical power. We're at a a node where several power lines meet. We're literally right beside an 820 megawatt power station, which is a, a major input into the production of these products. We have gas on site. We have water on site. And very importantly, we now control the land directly adjacent to the project that is suitable for the construction of the plant we propose to build. And just to run into the sort of high purity manganese production end of the business, what are the major input costs for that product? And how is your project set up in terms of those major costs? There's a variety of input costs, but the main ones are electricity. Then it's a a cluster of reagents that we use. They're they're fairly simple reagents, acid, lime, and a few others. And then it quickly drops down to labor costs. There's a number of other services and so on, but it really boils down largely to electricity and reagents. Okay, and you're pretty well placed for those. And just quickly, from a investing standpoint, as a European-based project, you must be pretty attractive from an ESG standpoint? For many reasons, I believe we are. For starters, we are not going to be mining any new rock. We're not going to be crushing. We're not going to be milling. All that has already been done. The raw feed that would go into this plant is tailings from an old mining operation. It's essentially fine sand. So right there, we have a a major environmental advantage. This is metal production without mining. It is also truly recycling of an old waste that is right now of no value to anyone else. Then we have the simple fact that we need to comply with some of the most stringent environmental laws in the world. So that gives any customer that wants to make sure that the inputs into their batteries and their electric vehicles, literally the greenest manganese products in the world. There's no doubts on provenance. This is not blood manganese. This (laughs) this is a truly green manganese. Okay, great. And what sort of timeline are you looking at now to get the project into production? What sort of catalyst are you expecting to deliver in, in the next six to 12 months and then after that? We've initiated work on our feasibility study. We've initiated work on our environmental impact assessment filings. We expect to have both of these completed during that time span, you know, all things going well. And uh, beyond that comes a very important financing phase of the project and ultimately the construction. And our goal remains to have construction completed by the end of 2022. In parallel with all this, this is a very much an ongoing and very intensive exercise. We are in discussions with a significant number of manganese product consumers in Europe and elsewhere who want to have high purity products produced in the greenest possible way. So there's a lot that's been going on. We we announced earlier this year in May, in fact, that we've already signed one strategic agreement with a, uh, a consumer of these products. We haven't yet disclosed who the party is for a lot of very good reasons. And we expect uh, to complete other similar arrangements leading ultimately to offtakes that would then facilitate the financing of this project. Okay, great. And what you've told me today about what you're doing, the work that you've already done, is pretty impressive. But I think it's fair to say that it's not really reflected in the stock's valuation. What do you think investors are missing currently when you look at the current valuation? I think manganese is a forgotten battery metal. Everybody has been focused for quite a while 
on lithium, on cobalt, uh, recently on nickel. And because of this, perhaps, I like to think erroneous perception that there's lots of manganese in the world. What people may be missing out on is that producing battery-grade products is a very challenging exercise to achieve the purity. And to produce these materials in a sustainable way is extremely difficult. We have been trying our best to communicate the advantages that we have, which are very considerable, and the very positive progress that we have made. And I think what you're likely to see over time is people will start to understand better the competitive advantages that we have and this remarkably strategic location that the project is in. And time will tell, and it's our intention to show that. Okay, Marco, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much, Matt. Moving on from manganese now into a material that isn't exposed to lithium-ion batteries at all. Vanadium batteries are unlikely to ever be used in electric vehicles, but they do provide a fascinating and now a cost-effective alternative to lithium-ion in stationary storage applications. This is a market that I believe is set for very high growth rates, even above those expected for lithium-ion batteries. And it was great to be able to sit down with the management of Bushveld Minerals to discuss the potential of this market and their plans to develop it. I was lucky enough to speak to Fortune Mojapelo, the CEO of Bushveld Minerals, and also Mikhail Nikomarov, the CEO of the Bushveld Energy subsidiary. The first voice you'll hear is Fortune's. Fortune and Mikhail, thanks very much for joining us on Recharge today. I'll just go straight into the questions. You have a very, very interesting platform from the battery's point of view. You've got world-class upstream vanadium mining and processing assets in South Africa. Quite an interesting downstream business and vanadium leasing and the potential to go into batteries themselves. Can we just start with a summary of the upstream business? Can you give a, a brief overview of what you've got in terms of your existing assets? Sure, thank you. Our asset base of mines and processing facilities are based in South Africa on the Bushford complex. We essentially have three key assets, the Medco, Mokopane, and the Brits project. And in addition to those three, we have recently announced the conditional acquisition of Vancam. I'll give you just a quick summary of what each of these assets are. Vamedka is our flagship asset. It's an integrated mine, open pit mine and processing plant. At its production base last year was 2,560 metric tons of vanadium. This year we have a guidance of 2,800 to 2,900 metric tons of vanadium and it has potential to grow to 4,200 metric tons per annum over the next three years on the back of an expansion program that we are running. Then we have the uh, BRICS project, which is an extension of the Vametco mine. We declared a resource there recently. The grades are about 1.58% V205, and uh, the resource size of the BRICS project is approximately R60. 7 million tons. Between Vermetco and Brits, then we have a resource space of approximately 260 million tons uh, resource. Now, over and above that, we have the Mokopani project. We have a pre-feasibility study that we completed, and we have a mining right on this project, which is imminent. The resource there is 298 million tons of vanadium. And the Mokopani project is intended to be a primary supplier of ore to Vancam, which will be our fourth assets once we complete the acquisition of that plant, which we announced earlier this year. Vancam itself is a processing facility, which currently produces at about a thousand metric tons of vanadium per annum and post the uh, refurbishment at a cost of about $45 million, will grow to 4,200 metric tons of vanadium per annum. So in total, what the portfolio has is three our deposits, which combined have a resource base of 552 million tons with vanadium top tier uh, vanadium grades of between 1.58% and 2.02% V205, together with two processing facilities that combined post the refurbishment, our investment, and the expansion plans at Vamedco 
are anticipated to produce 8,400 metric tons of vanadium over the next uh, three to five years. A really solid upstream set of assets. I will just add that at uh, Vermedco, we produce a product called Nitrovan, which is used by steel plants around the world for strengthening steel. Vancam will allow us to um, uh, diversify that product range to also include vanadium pentoxide, vanadium trioxide, vanadium chemicals, as well as ferrovanadium. So between those two processing facilities, we will be arguably the broadest range of vanadium products in a single company. Okay, thanks very much. Just quickly, in the June issue of Battery Materials Review, we flagged that you've got two of the world's seven tier one vanadium assets in terms of grade. We're tracking 51 vanadium mines and projects globally currently. Going forward, how important is grade going to be to vanadium production? The way you produce vanadium, uh, there are two main ways that that is done. You either build a, a steel plant or a pig iron plant, which produces steel or pig iron with vanadium coming out as a slag byproduct, which then needs to be processed further into uh, vanadium. And that processing uh, utilizes a method called the salt roast method. Alternatively, you go direct and you produce you know, vanadium using the salt roast method, which is what we do at Vermetco. Now, the key here is if you're going to process and produce vanadium, ideally you want to be running a primary vanadium facility because, you know, the key consideration there is vanadium. Whereas with pig iron or steel, you have to worry about steel economics, not to mention that the capital intensity of a pig iron plant is as much as five times that of a primary vanadium plant. But you cannot build a primary vanadium plant if your grade doesn't is not high enough above a certain threshold. By the way, that's why you find that most of the primary vanadium facilities are located in South Africa. It's a function of grade. But without it, you're forced to go down the path of steel plants or pig iron plants, which is highly prohibitive from a CapEx point of view, uh, among others. You talked a little bit about VanChem and about how it's going to diversify your product stream. Does that mean that you will move out of ferro-vanadium and you'll be able to produce vanadium chemicals, etc., for batteries and that sort of space. Is that correct? Well, look, ferro-vanadium and some steel plants prefer using ferro-vanadium. Other plants prefer using vanadium in a carbon nitride products uh, like nitrovan. So when we have both in our product mix, it just gives us more flexibility and more reach in the market. Also, the chemicals are production capabilities are, are very much important to us given our aspirations uh, in the energy storage industry. We are currently building an electrolyte manufacturing facility and we will look to you know, maximize synergies between that facility and VanChem. So that ability to produce multiple vanadium products is a huge set for us. We touched on energy storage and batteries. How much do batteries contribute to vanadium demand currently? And how much do you forecast they could contribute in the future? So that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, the statistics from last year was somewhere around 3% of uh, vanadium consumption went into energy storage. But I think there's a caveat there. You know, the second half of the year was very slow because prices were you know, at near historical levels, at, at which point just buying the vanadium outright made the battery uneconomical. So a lot of projects got pushed back with the expectation of either some sort of a solution around the vanadium supply or prices that would return to something more aligned with historical levels. From 2015, 2016, 2017, we saw very good growth, almost doubling actually in consumption of vanadium into energy storage. In the second half of 2018, that slowed. We would expect that to trend to, to resume now that the prices are closer to historical levels. In terms of where can this go, the forecasts are quite broad. It really depends upon what percentage of stationary storage can vanadium ductile batteries capture. That is a massive market. We're talking about a market that is close to 100 billion by the end of next decade. In terms of what percentage can it capture, somewhere between 10 and 25 percent, those are the different forecasts that we have seen. That could equate anywhere between 20 and up to 45% of vanadium production in the future. 
I was going to come back to the vanadium leasing later, but I think this answer just leads into it very well. So obviously, vanadium leasing sits in Bushveld Energy subsidiary. Can you tell us a little bit about the deal you've done and what sort of impact that's likely to have on the cost, the upfront cost of vanadium batteries going forward? We're trying to do a few things there, right? One is to reduce that upfront cost. The other is to allay the impact of higher prices. And we started this when prices were going up to be able to solve for taking out the impact of the vanadium price without, from the battery without taking the vanadium out of the battery. And really what it can do is, you know, the capex can come down almost to zero for an electrolyte piece, depending upon how you structure it. The model that we've worked at, third of the cost up front, or it can be zero again, it depends on what the customer wants. But basically, there's a few things that happen. First of all, you don't need to recover the full value of the vanadium because there's residual value. And so that's incorporated into the product. The second is we believe that financing for rental or lease is actually cheaper than financing that some of the clients would get or that project finance. So, so you're actually getting a better cost of capital. And the reason is because A, there's an underlying value of the vanadium. So it's not just about the cash flows. And so that additional collateral has, has value for investor or a lender. And then the third part is we're taking a large piece of the CapEx and we're putting it into OpEx. So again, you're not spending that money up front. You can do it over a longer period of time. And even though you, know, you shouldn't be looking at just the upfront costs of a battery and making a decision, you should be looking at lifetime ownership costs. Current statistics still show that about a quarter of all of these decisions, even at utility scale, are based upon upfront costs. And just to highlight, what's the percentage vanadium cost in the total cost of a battery at the moment? The moment means today's vanadium price or three months ago or three months from now. So that question itself is quite loaded because of the variability. But if you look at some historical rate and where vanadium and battery prices are, we're talking about 30% as the vanadium, the electrolyte might push that closer to 40. So it's a major cost driver, right? If you ask what is the contribution of lithium to lithium ion battery, you're talking about five, 6%, again, depending upon what the lithium price is. So it's a much bigger deal to solve for the vanadium cost for vanadium battery than it is to solve for the cost of lithium, cobalt, nickel, manganese for lithium ion battery. And just to round out the knowledge base on VRFBs, are there any other sort of raw material costs which are relevant in terms of the cost of of a VRFB in terms of the electrode or, or membranes or the casing of the battery? Not raw material. So the electrode is a polymer felt. It's really a manufacturing question. It's really there just about scale. Now, some different companies will use different polymers, different suppliers. Some will have material supply that has some sort of patent protection and trademarks, and it might be a little bit more expensive. But really, the second most component is that membrane, and it's a scale game. So if we can get to scale on manufacturing, the prices will drop, and they will not have a floor that is driven by commodity prices, as Electrolyte has. And from the point of view of the batteries, I think the leasing deal is very, very exciting. But your business has also got plans to go downstream into the energy storage chain. Could you talk a little bit about those plans as well? So I will uh, make a couple of comments and Mikhail will, uh, will, will talk further on it. And it's the following. When we started off Bushford Energy, our thinking was informed by two motivations. The first one was we noted that 90 plus percent of vanadium demand was coming from the steel sector and any opportunity to diversify and strengthen the demand profile for vanadium would be something that, that would be of interest to us. And then the second motivation was when you look at the energy storage market itself, and uh, you know, to Mikhail's point uh, earlier on, it is a large market, a potentially a $100 billion market by the end of the next ticket. So it's a market which commercially is compelling. And on both accounts, we decided to create Bushford Energy to drive VRFBs in the stationary energy storage market. Now, what also supports that on top of the uh, economic proposition of this market was the observation that the main hurdle to adoption of VRFB technologies in the stationary market are, are hurdles that are eminently solvable and that we as a company have a lot of opportunity to have direct impact on. And what are those hurdles? The one is the availability and supply or security of supply of vanadium. Given that, you know, 
VRFBs utilize the amount of vanadium that they do. And just to put that in perspective, a 100,000 megawatt hour market by 2027 is forecast by Navigant. If you take 10% of that as the market share that VRFBs can, occup- can take up, all right, and some estimates put that at 18% to 25%, you would need something like 55,000 tons of vanadium just to meet that, right? That's more than 50% of last year's total global vanadium production. And the second hurdle that you needed to to address is the one of the vanadium contribution to the cost of the VRFB, which we are solving for through the rental product, but also through making sure that we've got a low cost production base, which is scalable. And this is why as a company, we have spelled out an intention to more than quadruple our production over the next three to five years. So if you can solve for those two key hurdles, then VRFBs have a unique opportunity to emerge as one of the leading technologies in the global stationary energy storage market. And Mikhail, did you have anything to add to the downstream plans? So I think just what are we doing, right? I kind of think of it as three directions within Bushfeld Energy. One is around chemicals, which is manufacturing the electrolyte. There's some R&D that we do, and this is where the sales and the rental product come in. The second part is around actually manufacturing or assembling the batteries themselves. I think at some point, once the market develops in South Africa, we will look to put an assembly plant here. Together with that, we are looking at opportunities to take positions directly in some of the battery companies themselves. Obviously, we need to be comfortable that there's a good return there, but it's a way for us to start having some some impact in kind of the IP part of the industry. Then the third part, which is really where we spent the most efforts from Bushfield Energy point of view, is what I call deployments. And there, you know, we can do direct sales of batteries as a local value adding partner. But much more interesting is what I call project development, where if someone needs a, a storage solution, maybe together with a solar plant, we can actually go out and develop this opportunity, do the business case for it, raise the funding, do the permitting. And that's a very kind of interesting, interesting market. We've got a pipeline of projects. Obviously, we've done a project with the South African utility Eskom already. We're building a mini grid that is a commercial mini grid at our own mine that's solar and storage combined. There's a financial model behind it that, that we believe is bankable. And this is a way that we can actually contribute to the adoption of the technology and not just be kind of passive suppliers into the space. Okay, thanks very much. Now, to some extent in the stationary storage, you're competing against lithium-ion batteries, but... The VRFB has got a, a fairly unique set of properties. Could you just sort of recap how it competes with a, a lithium ion in these applications? Absolutely. I think that when you think about lithium ion and then the flow battery, the difference is, do you need power or do you need energy? You kind of use the comparison of a car. In a car, the motor gives you the power, the horsepower. You know, how fast can you go? How much torque can you generate? But it's the gas tank that tells you how far you can go at that speed with that power. And the flow battery, once you add in energy, right, you have a four-hour battery, a six-hour battery, an eight-hour battery, it becomes extremely cost-competitive to lithium, even despite the kind of the cost decreases that lithium has seen. So if you're looking for 15 minutes of storage, half an hour of storage, maybe even just an hour, you go and you buy a lithium-ion battery. And that's why they've been so successful in the U.S., where historically you've only had a market for frequency control and other types of ancillary services. However, as the trend is moving to long duration, when you need capacity support, multiple things for a battery to do, deferral of transmission investment, distribution investment, this is where the flow battery becomes extremely attractive. And I mean, one other benefit that I would add is the vanadium battery doesn't degrade. So if you're using it every single day, the capacity you have in one year, in 10 years, in 20 years is basically the same. Whereas for a lithium battery, you will have very quick degradation and getting it to last beyond 10 years or getting it to use it much more than once per day is going to be very difficult. So once you've got these use cases of long duration, fairly frequent use, the technology becomes not only compelling, but extremely attractive. By some estimates, 90% of stationary energy storage applications by 2027 will be of a long duration nature, which really plays to the strengths of vanadium flow batteries. Okay, that's fascinating. Thanks both. That's uh, really useful. So to summarize the business, you've got a world-class vanadium production base in South Africa, and now you're looking to move downstream into the battery value chain. 
recapping on companies that have moved into downstream businesses in the past, it has risks associated with it. How would you respond to an investor who was wary about the risks of moving downstream? When people talk about risks associated with downstream, oftentimes they're referring to moving from mining to processing, right? So if you look at the capital investment involved in building a mine relative to the capital involved in building a processing plant, you have a huge jump in that capital intensity. That is not what we're doing. With Vanadium, you have to build a processing facility, as we said earlier on. You're either going to build a primary processing facility or you're going to build a very expensive big iron or steel plant, right? And we in South Africa, as Bushford, have had the great opportunity of targeting brownfield assets, which means that we've been able to build the processing infrastructure capacity very cheaply and very quickly by targeting these brownfield assets, right? Once we've got these processing facilities and we produce vanadium, the downstream we are talking about into the energy storage is not capital intensive at all. By orders of magnitude, you're talking about as much as 10% of the capital intensity of building mine and processing facilities. So it is a misnomer that going downstream into the energy market for us requires are significantly more capex, right? So that takes out that capital intensity risk. So you ask yourself, what are the risks then are there involved? For a mining and processing company, our electrolyte plant that we're building in East London, which will produce enough electrolyte for about 200 megawatt hours per annum, that's $10 million capex, right? Equity, debt, and working capital included. Now, if I was to build a mine and a processing facility that produces the amount of vanadium that is involved in that amount of electrolyte, you're talking more than 10 times that amount of capex. So it is the kind of risk that we are uniquely positioned to absorb and to deal with because we've spent the big bucks in building the mines and the processing infrastructure. But having said that, I should also add that even though the capital intensity is much, much lower going downstream. The economic commercial opportunity is much, much bigger. The energy storage market is potentially five to 10 times bigger or as big as the commodity market just selling vanadium into the market. So for us, it's almost a no-brainer. And it gives us a very good hedge in terms of the vanadium price. When vanadium prices come off, while the mining and processing margins may come down, the attractiveness of our energy storage solution goes up. The best of both worlds. That's great. And obviously you do a fair amount of marketing about, of the company. What's the key factor in your view about the company that investors don't really get? Well, there are a couple of things. I think one of the challenges we have is that when you look at us, how do you look? Do you look at us as a mining company? Do you look at us as an energy company or both? And we think that predominantly we're still viewed as a mining company. And as mining and processing companies go, we are one of the lowest cost producers. We have a production platform on the back of which we can scale up our production. We're talking about growing our production for more than three times over the next three to five years for a very modest capex spend. Just the upside in that story alone is quite substantial, and we don't think that that's fully recognized and appreciated. Then you talk about the energy piece. We think that the energy storage market is in itself not yet fully understood, and there are a number of reasons why it's not yet fully understood. The dominant narrative today when people are talking batteries is still very much centered around EVs, right? electric vehicles, which is largely a lithium-ion space. Stationary energy storage is only beginning to catch on. And as it does, we think that the market will then caught on onto that. In an EV, the use of a battery is typically a single application, which is taking the car as far as you can from point A to point B. In a utility, in a stationary application, well, a single battery is doing multiple things, right? From deferring transmission capex investments to load shifting to integrating renewable energy and frequency regulation, et cetera, et cetera. So we appreciate that it's not the most straightforward story. And it's one which I think the market will only fully appreciate as we deliver very granular initiatives such as the electrolyte plant. And we start to produce electrolyte 
we deliver the electrolyte rental contracts and the market can see how that works and how it translates into value. As we deliver deployments of vanadium batteries, and as we demonstrate what sort of partnerships we are going to do with VRFP manufacturers. So I can understand why the story is not yet fully uh, appreciated, but I think it's only a matter of time. I guess one other question. You recently announced a possible change to your dividend policy. Could you just talk briefly about that? On the dividend policy, we didn't so much change as announced our approach to dividends. It is the first time we actually explicitly stated how we view dividends going forward as a company. And the key points we wanted to highlight there were firstly that as a company, we still are very much a growth story. And therefore, a big chunk of our proposition is capital growth. However, we as a low cost producer, we are a cash generating business. And we believe that with the growth ahead of us, we will be in a position to fund our expansion and our growth and still have sufficient free cash flow to pay out a dividend. And we just wanted to at least clarify that when we do do that, that would be based on a payout ratio on free cash flows. Okay, that's excellent. So Fortune Mojapelo and Mikhail Nikomarev, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you. So that brings us to the end of our roundup for August. You can get more detail on any of the topics I've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'll be back next month. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.